I often ask myself, what do we as Christians have that is so good that it's a shame that the world has to live without it? The answer, I believe, is the good news about Jesus, and that is worth sharing. This is Adam Hill, minister of the Word at Rochester Church of Christ, and I pray that today's message shares that good news and that you are richly blessed by it. Thank you to Dan and his team. I appreciate that, especially for that last song. I love those older hymns. Uh, and I, one of my fondest memories was when on Sunday nights we used to show up and just sing those older hymns. I love those. Uh, I hope my voice is not too scratchy. We had a game last night uh, in Ohio, and unfortunately I had to end up yelling a bit uh, to make sure we won. Uh, so it's nice when, you know, they can just do it on their own, but uh, so hopefully it's not too scratchy. I, I want to thank Adam, and by the way, I really enjoy listening to Adam every Sunday. He's so easy to listen to, and I appreciate his heart. And I want to thank him for trusting me uh, this morning. We are in uh, the series in John, as you know, and this morning we're in John chapter 9, and it's quite, uh, quite the text and quite the message uh, from John. I want to read chapter 9. And I don't know the best way for you to follow along, whether it's you read um, on your own in front of you, or whether it's simply just listen to the spoken word as I read, or perhaps on the screen. Uh, but there is a lot going on in this chapter, and John has a good bit to say. And so if you'd follow along, and I'll read our text this morning. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I'm going to pause a few times. I'll pause right here. Not going to spend too much time on this, but there's a big word involved here. And this is Jesus is essentially um, discussing something that we call deuteromistic theology. And these older church folks are coming to Jesus and saying, so this man was born blind, so surely there is sin in his life. And we get this from the book of Deuteronomy. And Jesus dismisses this entirely. He says, no, that's not what's going on here. Verse 6, after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like the man. But he himself insisted, I, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Now, I think this is John um, using some, I think, pretty pretty funny humor. 
how in the world would the blind man know where Jesus was or what he even looks like? Last time he saw him, he was blind. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. And if we've been listening to Adam and tracking him, we know that this is not a shock this morning. Jesus shows up and does these things on Sabbath, and it's as if he's trying to say, y'all need to understand something. I am the new law. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you have to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, He's a prophet. They still did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. Now listen to this sort of parenthetical statement by John. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who'd already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I told you already, but you don't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciples too? I love this guy. <laughs> then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Then the man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out. And when he found him, must have means he went looking for him. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him.
Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Lord God, bless us these next few moments as we look at your story. And we pray that we would have eyes to see. And not only eyes to see, but a voice and a heart that would claim that we actually believe in you. In Christ's name, amen. A friend of Helen Keller went for a walk in the woods, and she came back, and Helen Keller asked her what she saw. And her friend replied, nothing special. Helen Keller thought a lot about that, and then she ended up writing an article that over 90 years ago appeared in the Atlantic Monthly. And she titled it, Three Days to See. And I'll paraphrase the article. She says, I keep hearing from other sight friends of mine that they don't really see anything. And she says, I wish I had three days, 72 hours to see. Here's what I would do. On day one, I would spend almost all day just looking at the faces of the people that I love and the people that have been taking care of me. I'd want to feel the outline of their faces, and I'd want to look at their looks, their quizzical looks, their smiles, their frowns. And then in the afternoon, I'd go for a long walk in the woods, and I would soak up everything I see just like a child. And she says, on that first night, I don't think I would sleep much. I would just lay there and I would recount all the images that I'd seen, all the faces of the people that I love, all the things that I took in in nature. And she says, on day two, I would wake up very early while it was still dark because I would want to wait for that moment when dark turns to light. I'd want to catch that exact moment when that first glimmer of light appears on the horizon. I'd want to see that watch then the sky become full with light. And then after that, I would head straight to the museum and I would spend the rest of the day looking at art. And through art, I would try to probe into the soul of humanity. She says, I've tried to imagine art my whole life. I love art, but I've never seen it. And so that's where I would be. And then at night, I would lay awake and I would think about all the things that I'd seen. And she said, on day three, I think I would head straight into the city I'd go into town and I'd watch people and how they dress for work and how they pass each other on the sidewalk and I would want to see how they talk to each other, engage with one another, or perhaps even ignore each other. But I'd want to see what it's like in the world of commerce, in the world of business. And then I would go back and I would cherish those 72 hours of sight for the rest of my life. And she writes, I who am blind give one hint to those who can see. Use your eyes is if you'd be stricken blind tomorrow. And I think the same method could be applied to the other senses, right? Hear the music of voices like we just did, the sounds in nature, the mighty strains of an orchestra, as if tomorrow we would be stricken deaf. Touch each object as if tomorrow your tactile sense would fail. Smell the perfume of flowers, taste with relish each morsel as if tomorrow you would never be able to smell or taste again. Make the most of every sense, but of all the senses, I'm sure that sight must be the most delightful. The irony is that she who could not see, she who was blind, saw way more than most people with 20-20 vision. 
But some of us know that that's not uncommon, right? It was the blind prophet Tiresias who saw what Oedipus couldn't see coming. It was only when he was blind with his eyes gouged out that Samson finally knew what that strength had been for. And it was the visions of people like Milton and Fanny J. Crosby and perhaps even Homer, blind people, who helped us see. And it's going to be this fellow in John chapter 9 this morning. The person in our text who cannot see who's blind, but yet has clear, clear vision. But first, I just want to make a couple really quick comments about the Gospel of John, because I believe that chapter 9 is the critical moment in the Gospel. Some would argue it's the, it's the nuts and bolts of the Gospel of John. And so, please hear this. John was written much later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Much later. And John is the only Gospel that was written to second-generation Christians. It's a second-generation document. So what does that mean for us? Here's what that means. It was written to Christians who were not eyewitnesses of Jesus and what had happened. Did you catch that? So it was written to people like us who did not see Jesus, did not shake his hand, did not walk with him. John writes his gospel to those people. And his message to those people is, I know you didn't see him, but I want you to keep believing in him. And he doesn't write that to non-Christians. He's writing to Christians. Christians who did not see him, that's us, keep believing makes it a pretty relevant document. I think that chapter 9 could be its own sermon series. I think we could do three or four weeks easily, but we, we, we got to get it done here in the next, you know, 12 to 15 minutes. John seems to have a few major themes that he wants us to notice. First, who is going to have clear vision? Who's going to actually see and we get this stark warning that the one who you'd think wouldn't see clearly, the blind man, sees perfectly. And then the ones that had grown up in church their whole life and had been studying theology their whole life, they don't see it. The other thing is John wants his readers to understand the difference between a miracle and a sign. And John's been doing this if you've been listening to Adam. The difference between a miracle and a sign. A miracle is a wondrous act, no doubt. One of the things that, um, that I'm sad about because my kids are older is I don't get to see any more magic shows. When they were young, I felt like I saw a good magic show once a year somewhere with them. And I loved those magic shows. And they were wondrous acts. And in some ways, a miracle is a wondrous act. But a sign, a sign is different. A sign is not only a wondrous act. A sign points to something because of that wondrous act. And in this case, John 
is pointing to Jesus. He does it seven times in his gospel and then one more time at the end. We have to know the difference. The church folks see the miracle. The blind man sees the sign. And if we've been tracking Adam and John, we have this buildup, church. We have this buildup. Nicodemus had a hunch. The woman at the well had a hunch. The man at the pool Jesus encountered, he had a hunch. And we've heard grumblings from others about this man, and they have a hunch. And it's as if John builds up to this exact moment, and the blind man goes ahead and he says it. And he speaks it out loud. This is the guy. It's more than just a hunch now. I think this is the Messiah. You see the buildup? John's gospel is about who is willing to still believe and then claim it with your mouth and then keep believing it. That's what John's trying to do here. Okay, another critical point that John's making. Some would argue that perhaps this is the main point of the gospel, which I mentioned a minute ago. Remember, this is written to second generation Christians. I want to argue that this chapter and this story is largely about the parents. Largely about the parents. Christians are finally getting to the point where they're starting to pay a social price for believing in Jesus. Their lives are now starting to be altered and they're paying a price if they're going to say, I follow this peasant who was crucified at the hands of the Romans. Pharisees don't like that. So these parents in some way mimic Pilate. You remember Pilate? He's trying to keep the peace. He kind of likes Jesus, but he doesn't want to rock the boat. Wants to align with the political powers of the day. These parents don't want to suffer because of their faith. They just want to keep the peace. And they certainly don't want to be kicked out of church. Because that would essentially be the equivalent of being kicked out of their community. And so these parents have an opportunity to stand up for their kid. But not only stand up for their kid, stand up for Jesus. And instead, they don't do that. And they look pathetic. They don't stand up for him. They play it safe politically. They tuck tail to the church leaders. And in doing that, they turn their back on their kid. And they turn their back on Jesus. It's as if John is shining a light. It's as if he's taking a spotlight and saying, look at how bad these parents look. He's essentially saying, are you going to abandon your faith just because now you're starting to pay a social price for believing in Jesus? So now it's getting a little bit hard and you're going to abandon your faith because you don't want to get kicked out of church. Is that where you've planted your faith? Because your faith needs to be in a person, not a practice or a place. I'm going to say that again. Because I need to hear it. I think our faith needs to be in a person. Not a practice or a place or a program like Adam mentioned. And listen, I love church. 
I am a product of church. And I think there's been times in my life that if I had to decide between church and Jesus, I was going with church. Because I think that's where my faith was. But I want to get to the point where more and more, if I have to choose between the church and Jesus, that's an easy decision for me. I'm going with Jesus. How does John start to end this beautifully written chapter? The blind man sees again. And then he goes toe-to-toe with the church leaders. He goes toe-to-toe with the group that's in power. And instead of being open to the fact that this just might be the Messiah, here's what the church folks do. Listen, the church folks say, well, we really don't know where this guy learned his theology. They're essentially checking and questioning Jesus' academic pedigree. That's what they're doing. The religious leaders don't think Jesus is legit because they don't know where he went to prophet school. They don't know what tribe he's from. They can point back to Moses. I'm not so sure about this guy. I don't know where this guy's from. Where did he learn all this? Let me see his degree. They can't allow their theology to be disrupted by the event that's actually right in front of them. Hmm. And because of this, their questions are silly, and as smart as they are, they become ignorant. And the blind man, he calls them on it. He calls them on it. He says, here we have a man, and John doesn't even give us his name We don't even know his name. And he essentially says, listen, I don't know about all this theology stuff. I know you have more gray matter than I do. And I know you want to debate me. But here's what I'm going to say. All I know is yesterday I was blind. And today I can see. When I was in college, I had three or four people that really mentored me in the Bible department, and one of them still is, and I can't imagine doing life without him. And my goodness, does he have a lot of gray matter. He's the smartest guy I know. And I would never dream of making a decision without talking to him first. But the person who really put muscle in my faith when I was in college, he was a lay person. He probably wouldn't have uh, won a theological debate But he acted like Jesus, and he kept pointing me to Jesus. And he kept loving me like Jesus would love me. And that's the guy who put muscle in my faith. I hope you hear the balance in what I'm getting ready to say. One of my favorite theologians speaks of faith related to a tricycle. And he says the back two wheels of the tricycle are tradition and scripture, and these two things are critically important. The bike doesn't go without them. But the big front wheel, the big front wheel on the tricycle, he calls that experience. Now, experience has gone and gotten some people in trouble. You know, we can't just claim anything and put God on it. But perhaps it is time to blow the dust off the usefulness of experience. Church, the blind man had an experience. And he will never be the same. 
Nicodemus had an experience. The woman at the well had an experience. The man at the pool had an experience. And my guess is that many of you can relate to that. You know the word faith in the Gospel of John is never one time used as a noun. Every single time the word faith shows up in the Gospel of John, it is in the verb form. Faith is not something you have. John says faith is something you do. Faith is the experience of trusting God. Trusting God when you run out of wine in Cana. Trusting God when you're trying to make sense of being reborn. Trusting God with your sin and confusion and loneliness and questions, woman at the well. Trusting God with your sickness and disease, man at the pool. And trusting God when you can't see. So as I wind this down, John and Jesus are preoccupied with seeing and believing. Don't miss the creative point that our author makes this morning, and that's this. The one who has been blind from birth is the one who actually sees. And the church folks, the ones who have their theology in order, they miss it. They don't see. John is hammering the, port, the point home that Jesus is worth following. And the blind man sees it. And the religious folks don't. It's quite the warning, because I'm definitely the religious folks. When faced with church or Jesus, the parents pick church. And the blind man picks Jesus. I know it's hard to believe sometimes. Well, no. I got to make that a personal statement. I sometimes struggle with believing. And the other day I was in my office and I was talking to a friend and he said something that I thought was so profound that when he left my office, I wrote it down to try to get it just right. He said, I want to believe, but I just can't. Because I'm a visual learner, and I've never seen God. Okay. What I wanted to say was, well, you idiot. You breathe air every day, and you don't see air, but yet that keeps you alive. But I didn't. I just sat with it. Because the fact of the matter is, I feel the same way sometimes. But I want to believe and I want to trust in something that I can't see because I feel like I've had an experience. And so I just keep pointing to Jesus. And I trust that a life based on Jesus produces a good life, a better life. I'm thinking about this movie that I love, and it's, it's, it's been out a while now. It was called Secondhand Lions. Anyone seen that movie? One of the actors is, is Robert Duvall. And every time I see this, it just tears me up. This little boy has been abused by his mom, and been his, he's been abused by his dad, and he's been lied to his whole life. 
lied to and manipulated in all the bad ways. And he finally gets shipped off to live with his two great uncles. And then his uncle starts telling all these tall tales about when he, was a, when he was a youngster and all these things he'd gotten into and all these adventures. And then one night, the boy wakes up in the middle of the night and says, I have to know if these stories are true. He said, I've been lied to my whole life by my mom and my dad, and now I feel like you're lying to me. Are these stories true? And Robert Duvall said, it doesn't matter if the stories are true or not. What matters is if they are worth believing in. In this case, it matters if the story is true or not, and I believe it is. But maybe it's high time we put a PS on that. It's also worth believing. It produces the kind of life that's worth living. And that's the message I keep having when I talk to my daughters. I know it's hard. I know we can't see it. I know some of these things sound crazy, but it produces the kind of life that can have fruit. The story is a stark reminder to keep vision. And I know it seems like following a peasant who died on a cross at the hands of the Romans is becoming increasingly unpopular. But John says, even in that context, keep believing, keep walking with Jesus and claim it. Can we boldly side with the blind man this morning and make his testimony our testimony? What testimony? Maybe you ask. Did you catch it in the text? Like I said, there's a lot going on. Listen to the testimony in the text. The blind man begins by saying this. They call this man Jesus. And then he moves to, he's a prophet. And then he moves to, he's from God. And then finally he moves to, Lord, Lord, I believe. It's a beautiful testimony. Dan, you want to bring your team up? In the darkest moment in my life, three more sound bites. In the darkest moment in my life, I wanted a miracle and I received no miracle. But I did receive a sign. And the sign was the overwhelming sense that God loved me and that his promises remain true, even in the midst of my pain and even in the midst of my suffering. And that sign was enough. Listen, when the blind man gets shoved into a corner by the theologians, And he's into a corner, and he's trapped. He says, listen, I can't answer all your big questions. And I can't go toe-to-toe with you. And I don't know where Jesus went to prophet school. But listen, this is what I know. Yesterday I was blind, and today I can see. Yesterday I was lost. And today, I'm found. When Bill Moyers did his research, of all the songs in the history of America, there was one song more popular than any other. I think it should have been a Pearl Jam song. 
when he did his research, there was one song more popular than any other. The blind man in John would have known that song. Because one day he was blind, and the next day he could see. One day he was lost, and the next day he was found. Would you stand and sing it with us? A quick confession here. Truth be told, as I preach, I'm often preaching at myself. I'm saying what I need to be reminded of. Thankfully, my struggles and questions are not just mine. It turns out that being human brings some pretty universal challenges to all of us. I am so thankful for the good news of Jesus Christ. It has never let me down. I pray that today's message blessed you with the good news. Remember, you are loved and chosen.